So we are finished with Hebrews. We're starting a brand new series, and I want to open the series that we're going to be going through with the Great Commission. This is why Grace Community Church exists. This is why the body of Christ exists. So this is just before Jesus ascended into heaven. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He conquered sin and death. He rose again on the third day, uh, appeared off and on with his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended. And here's what he said right before he ascended. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That statement in Scripture is the mission statement of Grace Community Church. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples. That's our desire. That's why we exist. It's why the church exists. It's why the church exists. It's the great commission. That's the, that's the tagline that church history has given that statement. Now I'm going to show you on the next slide, um, the great revision. So there's the great commission. The great revision is what individuals in the body of Christ have done to the Great Commission. Now, you're not going to find this translation in the ESV, the New American Standard, the King James, the NIV. But if you are honest, if many of us are honest, we might find this translation actually exists in our hearts. Are you ready for the the new Great Revision? Here it is. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Parenthetical statement. In the event that Jesus' commandments are unpalatable, undesirable, or in any way different from what I want, I hereby reserve the right to modify, delay, or completely ignore any and or all of them. That sounds like a disclaimer that you would read in the fine print of some legal document, and I think Christians play that game with the Lord. Yeah, I'm all about the Great Commission, as long as I don't have to do anything uncomfortable. As long as we don't have to actually do anything which makes us uncomfortable... Which, uh, which stretches us, we're all about the Great Commission. And the fruit of that is evident. The fruit of that is evident. I think anecdotally, well, no, it's not an anecdotal statement. It's a statistical reality. The United States of America has not been a Christian nation numerically since 1969 in terms of numbers and or influence. That's 50-some years ago. We're not more so following Christ today than we were back then. Why? What's happened? Well, one of the things that's happened is the church has decided that the Great Commission is strictly optional. Strictly optional. If we are going to be a church as a local expression of the body of Christ and as a the church universal, we have to embrace the commission. We have to engage the culture that God's placed us in to make disciples who then make disciples. That's what Cindy was talking about. She's talking about, not just talking about your kids, but the next generation and their kids and their kids. So we are going to embark on a series this summer that's going to address the great revision and address the hearts of people like you and people like me who tend to gravitate towards revising the Great Commission and not actually doing it. We're going to spend this summer looking at the prophet Jonah, 
who was given a commission and rejected that commission. More specifically, our, our goal is to have our hearts transformed. Our hearts transformed. So please open your Bibles to, to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to take a look at four things this morning in the first three verses. Number one, the command. What did God tell Jonah? It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and there's a command. There's a specific command. The second thing we're going to look at is Jonah's rebellion. We're going to look at the motive of rebellion. Why do people hear hear the command and then run from the command? The second thing we're going to look at, or the third thing, is the the consequences. The consequences of this command. And then lastly, the God who pursues. The God who pursues. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to speak to us through through his word. That we might hear, and not just hear, but we might heed. Hear and heed the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you in humble dependence. Apart from you, you say in John chapter 15, we can't do anything, and we recognize that. I can't preach to the glory of God unless, Spirit, you fill me with your spirit, unless you bring these words to life. They are life, and I pray that you would open up our ears, soften our hearts, that the word of God might find fertile soil, that we might obey, that we might be saved, that we might be a blessing to others, that we might, Lord, bring glory to you. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Okay. First of all, the command straight out of the shoot. We're taking a look here at Jonah chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Matthias saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Okay, first of all, let's get a little context here. This is about 800 BC, 800 BC. It's towards the, uh, Jonah is a prophet, mostly to the northern 10 tribes in Israel. So if, if you remember your, your history, or maybe you don't know your history, but in the, in the Old Testament, there was a united kingdom of Israel under David and then under Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom split. And you had the ten tribes in the north, Israel. And then you had the two tribes, Judah and the smallest tribe, Benjamin, in the south. Now, the, the kings of, of Judah were off and on okay. Some of them were bad. Some of them were good. Some of them didn't follow, follow Yahweh, and others did. In the northern ten tribes, they were all awful. Every single one of them. The first one, Jeroboam the first, decided, hey, here's a good idea. We don't want to go to worship in Jerusalem, so let's set up a temple in Samaria, and we'll worship a golden calf. Who votes for that? Oh, that's awesome. Great idea. Horrible idea. And that was the, the, the way it went from that point forward. And there were worse kings, like Ahab, and Manasseh, these were horrible, horrible individuals. None of them followed the Lord. So Jonah is preaching to this culture. That's who Jonah preached to. You can read about Jonah and his, his brief preaching stint uh, in Jonah chapter, or rather, not Jonah, but 2 Kings chapter 14. But this whole book, called the book of Jonah, is one of the, one of the minor prophets, not minor in significance, but shorter. There's Isaiah, very, very long. Ezekiel, very, very long. Jeremiah. And then there's Obadiah. There's, there's Jonah. They're smaller. So you can read Jonah in one sitting before breakfast over coffee. It's a very, very brief, but it doesn't read like a prophetic book. It reads more like a historical narrative. 
You don't hear most prophetic books like Obadiah and Hosea and Jeremiah. You hear and you read what the prophet said. That's most of, of what God said to the prophet and then the prophet said. That's not so with Jonah. You only hear one sentence from Jonah. Thus saith the Lord. The rest is all about what Jonah did, did not do, and, and all the events surrounding that. So that's the context. So he's commanded the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Matthias, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So the commission here, the commission is, is that God wants this prophet of Israel to go, not to Israel, not south to Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, not to God's covenant people, but he wants them to go, he wants him to go east about 500 miles. So exit out of Israel, go across Syria, go north and eastward over the Euphrates River, and then all the way up to the Tigris River, in which is modern day Iraq slash Iran, and go to the city, the capital of Assyria, not Syria, that's right next door, but Assyria, which is about five to 600 miles away, and go to their capital city, Nineveh. Why? Because the Ninevites are awful human beings. And there's been a great outcry from their own people and the people that surrounded them. Verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, it's a big city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, what's the purpose of God sending a prophet anywhere to, to Israel or to Nineveh? Why would God, what's the purpose of the, the sending of the prophet? God doesn't want... Jonah to go there just so they can know that God is going to step on them and judge them. He wants them, wants him to go there so he can proclaim God's wrath against them so that they might actually repent. Ezekiel chapter 33, the great prophet Ezekiel, God spoke to him and says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I desire their repentance. Turning your Bibles to, in the New Testament, to second, or rather, first Timothy chapter two. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, First of all, then I urge supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, catch this, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the purpose of the Great Commission. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Jonah, go preach repentance to these people who do not know me. Now, the Ninevites were exceptionally wicked. They were awful. They were very, very violent. Assyria was known at the time and feared by their neighbors for being a very violent people. They would conquer the enemies. They would cut off their heads. They would stack them outside the city, put them on stakes. They would skin their, their, uh, their opponents alive. They would mock the rulers, do all sorts of horrible, horrible things to their enemies. And they would also treat those in their own communities that were lower than them in a caste system very, very poorly. There was no justice in Nineveh, only for those in power. So their great evil rose up to the Lord and he wants Jonah to go. So what's God calling you to do? Look at, look at the first verse here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord has come to you and me. God speaks to us through his word. The word of the Lord has come to you. Whatever your name is in this time, in this place, 
the word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter one, verse 14. The word of the Lord is spoken and given to us in his scriptures. And the Holy Spirit still speaks today. The Holy Spirit still speaks today. I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you, but he is speaking to you. He is speaking to you. What is the word of the Lord? That, what, is, what is the Holy Spirit prompting? For some of you, for some of you, the Holy Spirit is calling you to place your faith in Christ. You come to church, you're here, you're watching online, and you have heard the gospel again and again and again, and you're reluctant. But you hear the Holy Spirit saying, you need to trust me, you need to place your faith in me. You need to repent of your works, and you need to trust me for your salvation. I want a relationship with you. And yet, yet some of you are reluctant. Some of you have a relationship with Christ and God is wanting you to reconcile with someone, to, to forsake some sin, to, to serve him in some specific way, to open your mouth, invite your neighbor to church, invite your neighbor for coffee or do something. Volunteer for Backyard Bible Club. I don't know what it is, but the Lord is always speaking to us through his word and through his spirit. And we hear his word to us in this sense. I think I ought to do X. If X is found in the Bible, well, then the Lord is speaking to you. If you feel you you ought to do something and that ought to do something is verified in the scripture as it hit in Isaiah chapter 49, just for context for Jonah, Isaiah 49, this is before Jonah. The Lord says to Isaiah, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God gives Jonah a word. It conforms with scripture. Go preach the gospel. From the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, when Abraham is called, he says, follow me, go to the place that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless all nations through you. It has always been God's desire to use God's people to reach people that don't know God, to bring them to the, to the knowledge and truth of who Jesus is. This is the will of the Lord and what he's speaking to you specifically and how you fit into that plan. I don't know, but you do fit. If you are in Christ, he has called you into a covenant relationship with himself and wants to use you to reach the culture that you live in. He wants to use you to reach the cultures you don't live in to the very ends of the earth. That is the great commandment. So specifically, we're called to fulfill the great commission. And then also it says, and all that I have commanded. So that's the command. This is how it works out specifically for Jonah. Now let's take a look at how he responds. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So remember the geography here. God wants Jonah to go 500 miles east to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. Jonah, hearing the word from the Lord, takes a step towards the west to go to a port city of Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv, and he books passage to Tarshish, where, pray tell, is Tarshish. It is the furthermost tip on the globe at the time. It's on the coast of Spain. 
He wants to go 2,000 miles the wrong direction. Jonah knows exactly what God wants him to do, and he's digging his heels in. Oh, no, no, no. He's not digging his heels in. He's picking up his heels and he's running. He's fleeing. He is fleeing. And Jonah is not alone. Jonah is not alone. Just take the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. George Barna, uh, a pollster, did a survey just last year and found that only 17% of Christians can actually tell you what the Great Commission is. They don't even know what it is. So only 17% know what the Great Commission is. Now, that doesn't mean that 17% of people who call themselves Christians are actively engaged in making disciples. It just means they can tell you what they're supposed to do. Hello. Is this God? So you want us to make disciples? Thanks. We're on it. That's not part of the sermon notes. Just thought I would add that just for fun. So here we all are. We've gotten the call. We have gotten the call literally and figuratively this morning. The Lord is speaking to us, says, go and make disciples. So all of you fit that 17% of the population of the church that actually knows what the, what the Great Commission is. But that doesn't mean we're actually doing it. Some of us are on the road to Tarshish. We have no desire to be and, well, we want to call ourselves disciples. We just don't want to be involved in making other disciples. Another survey that uh, Barna did back in 1993 found that 89% of Christians who do share their faith or have shared their faith agree that it's the responsibility of every Christian to share their faith. Now, that was 1993 before this church was built on this property. 2018, that same survey was reissued to a new group of Christians. 64% of Christians who share their faith agreed that it's the responsibility of every Christian to share their faith. So in the span of all of those years, there's been a 25% drop in the understanding of the church that it's their responsibility to share their faith. That's a problem. That's not the Great Commission. That's the Great Omission. If the church doesn't even understand it's the responsibility of the church to share their faith... What do they think the church is for? Well, it's where we get married and where we do our baptisms and hold our 50th wedding anniversaries and where we die and are buried. No. All of those things might happen within the context of a, of a, of a, of a, of a church building, but that's not what the church is for. So why does Jonah run? It's clear that he runs. Why? Why do you think Jonah ran? What's a predominant reason that people are they don't want to be involved in the Great Commission. Fear. Fear. But maybe not the way you think fear plays. Now, how many of you are, are you're steering, steering your faith intimidates you? Raise your hand. You're afraid. That's normal. That's normal. And for Jonah specifically, if he was afraid to go to Nineveh because he's afraid that he would be rejected, he's afraid that he wouldn't have the words to say, he's afraid that not only would he be rejected, but his life would be in danger, his fears would be well-founded. This would be the equivalent of God coming to someone in Israel in 1929 and saying, hey, new commission, I want you to go to Berlin and I want you to tell the Germans to stop being awful. Okay, that's 
loosely the equivalents because Nineveh at this time is not a world power. Assyria is is kind of weak. They've had some civil wars. They've had a famine. They're not a dominant regional or regional or global power, but they're awful people. And it would be dangerous for Jonah to go into this community in the same way it would be dangerous for a Jewish person to hang out in Berlin in the early thirties. So if that were his motive, if he was afraid of what might happen to him, that's a, that would be a well-founded fear, but that's not his motive. He is a, he, there is a fear, but he's not afraid of his own personal safety. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. We'll come back to this and we'll study it in detail later. But it's important for you to see what Jonah is actually afraid of. Jonah chapter 4. So we're jumping over the whale story and the storm story. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. And now he's, he's gotten a second chance and God says, go to Nineveh. And he says, okay, I'm on my way. And he goes and he preaches. A very, very brief, condensed message. 40 more days and you're all toast. And that's all he says. That's all he says. And then he gets a lawn chair and he sets it up at the edge of the city and he's waiting for the fire to fall. He's waiting for these people to be torched. He's waiting, hoping, anticipating God to just judge and smite these awful Ninevites. They're terrible, terrible people. And so what happens? He preaches and they call a national day of fasting and repentance. Everyone, the king just says, everyone's going to repent. Everyone's going to fast. Everyone's going to pray. In fact, everyone's going to fast. Even your animals are going to fast. Don't feed your animals. This is a national revival and they repent. And Jonah says, verse one of chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious God. It's merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life. I am so angry that you spared these people that I want to die right now. What does that tell you about Jonah? He was not afraid for his life. He was afraid that these people would come to know and worship his God. Now we're going to get into what, what, why that was troublesome in a few weeks when we get to Jonah chapter four. But here's the bottom line. He was fearful that Lord would spare them because he hated these people. He hated these people. I came to the university of Iowa in 1985. It's an 18 year old kid worked construction the summer before my freshman year. And my folks drove over from Newton, Iowa, where I was raised, and they took me out to lunch, and it was a Saturday, and I and, uh, wasn't working, and we went downtown, and, and it was about this time of year. It was mid-June. I don't remember the exact day, but it was a Saturday. And we eat lunch, and we come out of the, the, the place we were eating, and we're standing there on Iowa Avenue and walking back to the car, and there's a parade. It's like, oh, look, parade. It's June. It's not July 4th. What's going on? So we stop and we watch. It's a pride parade. It's a pride parade. I came from Newton. I've never seen a pride parade. And one particular, I don't, I don't want to call it a float, but a group of, group of guys where they were wearing Speedos and they had painted themselves pink and they had pig noses all on their, uh, like this, like snouts and they were carrying a picket fence and there was a sign. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what the sign said, but it, it would have read Iowa corn fed hogs, but that's not what it said. 
and so they were, they were carrying it and they were all dancing and, and I'm just the 18 year old kid watching this and my dad's watching this and my mom's watching this and my dad turns to me and says, Toto, you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> it was weird then. It's weirder now. Our culture is following the spiral down the toilet of Romans chapter one. We are on down the way. So, and for those of you who aren't sure what Romans chapter one says, the the apostle Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind because of their wickedness. Although they know the truth about God, they suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. And therefore it says that God has given them over to their sin to do what ought not to be done. And it says that phrase three times, God has given them over to the sin to the point where it says that not only do they do wickedness, they approve of those who do such things. And the Jonas in the church are saying, you judge those people, God. You burn those people. They don't love you. They hate you. They don't love the church. They mock us. They're not like us. And we set up our lawn chairs at the end of Nineveh and we crack open our beverages and we wait for the fire to fall. Just like watching fireworks on the 4th of July. Only we want to see God's wrath poured out on all those people. And God says, I want you to go to them and I want you to share my love with them because I do not desire that the wicked should perish, but that all men come to repentance. And the body of Christ has all together almost abandoned the Great Commission. Because we think we're so much better than the Ninevites. You were a Ninevite. And in 1985, as I stood on the curb, On Iowa Avenue, I was a Ninevite. And if someone had not taken the gospel to me, who was not looking for Christ, I would perish. And so would you. We are called to be agents of mercy, ambassadors for Christ, to people that don't want the gospel. So yeah, Jonah was afraid. He was afraid that God would have mercy on those people because he doesn't like those people. And I see that in the church. I see that within the body of Christ, the things which are, we are most impassioned about are getting our rights back. And by the way, who wants to lose their rights? Who wants the Ninevites to rule? The Ninevites... They've taken over education. They've taken over the government. They've taken over everything. So what, what the church is most passionate about is building a wall around the church to protect herself from the influence of the Ninevites. And what God is saying is, go to Nineveh. You live there. You don't even have to go 2,000 or 500 miles to the east. You just got to open your door and step out. There you are. You live in Nineveh. And we are called to take the gospel to them. Jonah is certainly not alone. 
What is God calling you to do that you're afraid to do? See, the root of all disobedience at, at its heart has fear at its, at, its, at its epicenter. Why don't you want to share your faith? I'm afraid that I'll be rejected. Why don't you want to obey? Because I'm afraid that it'll be uncomfortable. I'll be afraid that I'll lack something. I'll be afraid that God won't provide. I'm afraid that if I reach out for reconciliation, I'll be rejected. I'm afraid. Fill in the blank. What is God calling you to do? And why are you afraid to do it? You're not alone. Jonah's right there with you. We all have our idiosyncrasies. We all have our fears. And fear is the thing that keeps us back. We fear God's plan is not the best plan. That's the best way to look at it. For Jonah, the plan was to go to Nineveh. That's not his best plan. He doesn't want to see that happen, so he chooses to go the other way. He avoids obedience, avoids, and there's two, so that's his motive for running and your motive for running or not going is the same as Jonah's. It's fear-based, but maybe not your fear might not be that they would come to repentance. Your fear might be for your own safety. Your fear might be because you might lose comfort. You might have to sacrifice or give up something. I, I don't know, but the Lord knows, but there's two ways we run. We can run like Jonah, which is overt running. That's just literally taking off and going 2,000 miles the wrong direction. That's the prodigal son. Tim Keller wrote a beautiful book called The Prodigal Prophet. It's about Jonah. So he is the prodigal prophet. He literally runs to a far-off country or tries. He tries. So there's the overt running, but there's also running in place, which is what most people in the body of Christ are doing. What's it look like to run in place? I'm doing it now and I look really stupid, so I'm going to stop. It's a metaphor. We run in place when we hear the word of the Lord, Brooks, go do this, and we do what Jesus gave as an example in the the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, verse 28. So a, a farmer comes to his two boys, a vineyard worker, and he says, sons, go and work in my vineyard. And the one son says, no. I will not. He runs, but he changes his mind. He comes back. The other son says, sure, dad. And goes nowhere. And that's what many people in the church do. Go make disciples of all nations. I'm right on it. And we kind of like the person it's, you know, four 30, they get off work at five. They're clock watchers. Four 35. 37. What am I doing? I'm running in place. I'm doing nothing, but I'm obeying. And people do that in the church all the time. Signing up for this or signing up for that, signing up for this Bible to say this small group, this, this, blah, blah, blah. We keep ourselves busy, 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 busy. And no disciples are made. God says, go work in the vineyard. And we say, I'm all about the great commission. Haven't shared my faith in 20 years, but I'm all about the Great Commission. I want my neighbors to burn and go straight to you nowhere, but I'm all about the Great Commission. What? That's running in place. It's absurd. It's It's just as obedient as fleeing to Tarshish. And by virtue of the fact that you're all here, if we're not making disciples, we have more in common with the son who said, yes, I'll go, but doesn't go than we did do with the son who actually left. So those are two reasons for running. Let's take a look now at the consequences. The consequences. But the 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to go to them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. The first consequence is that we exit the presence of the Lord. Now we're going to see the Lord pursue next week. But here's the deal. Turning your Bibles to, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. John says, this is the message that we've heard from him and we proclaim to you. That is, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the thing. You cannot simultaneously walk away from the Lord and avoid the Great Commission and have fellowship with the Lord and with other believers. There's a disconnect. The moment God says, Brooks, do X, and I say, I'm doing Y, or I say, yes, I'll do X, and I don't do X, the moment of disobedience is the moment I choose to step into darkness. I head to Tarshish, metaphorically or literally. And as I am headed to Tarshish, I am not experiencing the presence and the power of the Lord. And here's what's accompanied with when you lose the presence and the power of the Lord. You no longer, you no longer bear the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, that's an outflowing of the Spirit of God working within you. It gives you the ability to love the Ninevites. And love those who are your fellow Israelites, your own family members. But the minute we say, nope, not going to do it, what characterizes our hearts? What characterizes our hearts? Strife, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, drunkenness, sexual immorality, all the, the misdeeds of the flesh. And there's enough of that in the body of Christ, which would indicate that, gosh, it Maybe the body of Christ isn't walking in the spirit. So you can't go to Tarshish and walk in the spirit at the same time. When you flee the presence of the Lord, you don't have the power of the Lord and you don't have the peace of the Lord. And that's why there's so many in the body of Christ who are filled with anger and bitterness and anxiety. It's not because of their circumstances are bad. It's because they're not walking in the spirit. So how do we change? How does Jonah change? Well, here's a simplistic answer that's not an answer. But nonetheless, you, you've heard it. You've heard it, and you might even think that this is the way to change. Just stop being disobedient. Well, yeah, duh. But that doesn't give you the power to change. Knowing what you ought to do doesn't give you the power to do it. So how do you change? Go to Nineveh. Yeah, you already know that. I'm going to guess that there's not one Christian here that this was a giant revelation that you're supposed to love and share your faith with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. I'm just a hunch. So knowing what you ought to do doesn't empower you to do it. Knowing what you, that you ought to love those that you don't love doesn't empower you to love. Knowing that you ought to forgive those whom you just as soon not forgive doesn't empower you to forgive. So how do you do it? How? How? You have to come face to face with a God who pursues you. 
The book of Jonah is not about a whale. There is a whale. He gets two verses. That's it. Just two. The book of Jonah is about a merciful God and his heart for the lost. So the only way you and I are going to change is if that God we're running from as believers and for some of you as soon to be believers, but not yet. The only way our hearts change is if he catches us. And here's the thing. Some of the storms that you are experiencing, you're interpreting as God's displeasure and God's wrath against you. He loves you so much, he will interrupt your life with a storm. So that you can turn and you can begin to dwell in his presence. He loves you that much. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me and he wants to use your children to reach the community and the culture that we find ourselves in, which is governed by Ninevites at every level. And he wants us to care, but we have to meet him where he's at. And he'll come to you where you're at, even if it's in the belly of a whale. So this Friday, we are going to have a time of prayer. We're going to have a time of praise. So bring your lawn chairs. We'll be right out back. 6.30, back here in North Liberty. Night of praise and prayer. And the focus is looking up. Looking up. What we're doing here this summer is we're kicking off a season of mobilization. And that's why we're going through the book of Jonah, so that our hearts can be prepared for a greater work that God is calling us to. That quite honestly, I'm not sure that we really want to do, but God's calling us to do it. So the summer is all about getting ready. It's all about examining our hearts. It's all about the Lord showing us the garbage that's there so that he can cleanse it. So we can be, we can confess our sin and he's faithful and just to forgive and purify us from all unrighteousness, including the fact that we don't want to go to the Ninevites. So it's all about preparation. And we're going to spend uh, this, uh, this Friday asking the Lord to prepare our hearts in the fall. We're going to do a series called encountering Christ where we are encouraging all of you to bring your friends, bring your neighbors, bring the people that you don't like and they don't like you. Bring them so that they can encounter the living God and the mercy of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be praying for those people. We'll be praying for our hearts to be mobilized and set, set ablaze. And then we're just going to praise God and thank him for his grace during a tough year, a tough year and pray for opportunities to share our faith. So come that we might look up that we might look up and praise him. Typically I end by praying and saying, go in grace and you all shuffle out of here and head to your local eateries. But we're going to end this service um, standing on our feet. So if you would please stand Jonah chapter two, one verse two says, arise, arise and go to Nineveh. You and I have been given the gospel. And we are to receive it and believe it and arise and go and make disciples. The question is, all of you are standing, me too, 
We're all rising and we're all going. The question is, are we going to go left and head to Tarshish? Are we going to head east and go to Nineveh? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you arose from the grave after conquering sin, after conquering death. We thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Spirit, that you um, quickened our hearts and you called us to yourself. We thank you that we have been born again through you. For those who have not yet trusted you, I pray that their first step would not be towards Nineveh, but it would be towards you. And that today would be the day that they call out on you, confess their sin to you, and receive your grace and forgiveness. And Father, I pray that you would show us your great love for us, that we might discover you as the God of mercy, that we might be merciful. Lord, we look around and we, we judge people as either worthy or unworthy of the gospel. And the truth of the matter is there's not a worthy person here. But you have made us worthy through what Christ has done his obedience, his death. So Lord God, I am asking that you would pour your spirit upon your church, that we might have hearts like the father, that we might not be angry that we might not be fearful, that, but we might joyously embrace Lord, your desire to be and to make disciples, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a culture that desperately needs you, even though it doesn't want you. Lord, we pray these things to the end that Christ would be exalted, that he would be magnified, that he would be lift up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, go in grace. We'll see you next week.